0: This is the Disciple Makers podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season, we bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together other like-minded organizations who are all focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. Before we get started into the featured content for today, I want you to know about an ebook called Multiply Disciples by Winfield Bevins, which Discipleship.org released in partnership with Exponential. Multiply Disciples draws wisdom from church history by looking at several important disciple making movements the Celtic movement, the Moravian movement, and the Methodist movement. These movements offer vital contributions to the church. That can help you rediscover the power of making and multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. Author Winfield Bevins is the director of church planting at Asbury Theological Seminary, and you can download his ebook "Multiply Disciples" at discipleship.org/ebooks or click on the link in the show notes. Today we're featuring an episode from Renew and their track at the National Disciple Making Forum called "The Teaching of Jesus to Fuel Disciple Making." The episode is called. Progressive Christianity and Discipleship, featuring David Young and Brett Andrews. Take a listen.
1: Thank you guys for being here. My name is Jason and I'm with Renew. Uh, We have a couple of our board members and founders here today, Um, so you guys are in for a treat. But I just really quick wanted to introduce Renew in case somebody is here that doesn't know Renew very well. Um, At Renew, uh, our mission statement's here. We renew the teachings of Jesus, that's the whole Bible, uh, to fuel disciple-making. We're interested in We're a network similar to discipleship.org, but we are unique in the fact that we are laser focused on good biblical theology, um, and we believe that good biblical theology begets, promotes, motivates Christians to seek, save, and disciple uh, those that are lost. Um, And we do that through five ways that we have found to be effective. Uh, Three of them are content-driven. We provide a platform for our partners, our contributors, our founders, Um, to speak about theology. One is our website, Renewed.org. Please go there if you haven't. Um, There's lots of great information. We put fresh, relevant, and current information and posts and podcasts and newsletters and things there every single day. Um, We also have our national gathering. That was just a couple days ago. We had about 600 folks passionate about theology come together um, to teach and encourage one another. Um, We also have a publishing imprint. You'll find our books on Amazon. You'll also find them on the website. And then we have two kind of rubber meets roads things that we do. Uh, We like to create and promote simple, uh, reproducible ways of helping people become better disciple-makers, and we teach that in a mentor style um, of teaching. And then we also have learning communities where we bring together young uh, lead ministers. Most are under 40. Uh, We bring in uh, guys who are proven disciple-makers and church planners and we share best practices, and then they break into subgroup, think tank-type types, uh, like type groups. They figure out how they can take things away from that, bring them back to their churches, um, shift the culture there, and uh, then they, uh, they don't just leave equipped and encouraged, but they come back together regularly to hold each other accountable for the change that they said they needed to affect. Um, so that's who we are. That's what we do. Thank you guys for being here. If you want more information or you're not, uh, signed up to our newsletter, and or uh, I just want to provide you guys with some cool free resources that we have. I'm going to pass this around. I'd love to get your name and your emails, okay? Um, so we got Brett Andrews, David Young here to talk about progressive Christianity to you guys today. Thanks. Brett? So um,
2: just kind of give you a sense of... of Who I am, and then David will in a second. My name is Brett Andrews. I've been. Can you guys
1: hear? I'm sorry. Can you guys hear I'm okay in the back? Good? Okay. Thank you. Yes.
2: Um, I've been leading the church in Northern Virginia for 26 years. We started actually 26 years ago. Um, We are a church planting church. Uh, We, if you're familiar with Exponential, um, we're kind of the mother church for Exponential. Um, Why that's relevant to us is Exponential. Discipleship.org kind of is a, is a family member of Exponential. Um, Todd Wilson is behind that, is also behind this too, with Bobby. So anyway, so that's kind of the relationship that we have. Um, we uh, The substance of our conversation today, Discipleship.org obviously is about discipleship. This is not going to be so much a conversation about how to make disciples as it is what kind of disciples are you going to make. So it's not going to be a, these are five things that you can do to go make disciples tomorrow. It's going to be more about how do we make sure we are making better disciples and stronger disciples for the future. So that's kind of the, if you want to get a, an overview of what our goals are here today. Before we go any further, let's pray together. Okay? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you've gone ahead of us. In this place that we trust that you have words to say to each person here because of work that you are doing and want to do in their lives and in their churches our hearts desire is for people to see your love and to know your truth and to that end Lord help us to know you better to hear your voice, and then to leave this place more prepared to love uh, with your powerful, life-changing, stunning kindness. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Now I think the place to begin is, first of all, by (laughs) introducing David Young and by um, then defining terms, what is progressive Christianity. So I'm going to ask David to, come on David, to introduce himself
3: and to define that for us. David Young, so progressive Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> David, who are you? I'm a minister in uh, just down the road in Mercury, Tennessee, and uh, one of the co founders with Brett of uh, uh, Renew. And that's it. And I, I do other stuff too. But I like to camp. I consider myself an artist and a musician. I'll have a joke, sorry. Uh, And a model. And a model. (laughs) More like a shipwreck in the harbor. Don't go this way. Uh, Progressive Christianity is a deliberate, largely white and elite, distortion of historic Christianity designed to appeal to secular values in North America. So when we say progressive Christianity, what we're really talking about is sort of a renewal of old-line theological liberalism. So if you know something about old-line theological liberalism, which goes back really to the very end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, progressivism is sort of a rebirth of that. So it shares a number of common elements. And when you talk about progressivism, there are really two things that I would say. One of them is there's sort of a core set of doctrines that progressives tend to lean towards, although it's a spectrum. So not everyone is all over the place. Uh, not everyone is fully leaned into these. But the second thing about progressivism is it's also sort of an orientation. So I'm going to tell you some of the doctrines that progressives tend to lean towards. But as important as that is the fact that progressivism is an orientation. It's a style that essentially says, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of open to whatever secular America is offering us. And that's an orientation in addition to a set of beliefs. So generally speaking, uh, progressive Christians in North America will emphasize Jesus as a social reformer, more than Jesus as the Son of God. And in some cases, Jesus as the Son of God is totally denied. Progressive Christianity in North America will tend to uh, emphasize personal enlightenment more than the resurrection of Jesus or the resurrection of the dead. Progressive Christians tend to have a very optimistic view of human nature, where the historic Christian faith and scriptures teach that humans uh, are inherently sinful since the fall of humanity. Progressives actually have a very optimistic view of humans. And by the way, that's a, uh, that will explain a whole lot of things about progressivism. Progressivism then generally believes that we have the capacity to build our own utopia here. So for progressive Christians, the kingdom of God generally means social justice, doing social justice stuff here, as opposed to the concept of God a really sort of transforming creation and then bringing in a new heaven and a new earth, as the scriptures teach. Progressive Christianity generally doesn't speak of sin, but instead speaks of of social disease. And so salvation for progressive Christianity tends to be more therapeutic or policy-driven and less about the atoning, atoning death of Jesus. In fact, progressivism generally plays down the atonement of Jesus. So the cross of Jesus and progressivism tends to be more a martyr's death. This is what happens when you're a good person living in an oppressive government or, you know, when so-and-so is president, rather than an actual atonement that forgives humans of their sins. A a fulcrum for progressive Christianity is that uh, self-inspired sentiment is generally much more important than the actual scriptures. And so... um, You'll hear people talk about how they feel, and that's generally considered more valid than what scripture may actually say. So now I can keep going with the list, uh, but let me just pause, and, 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 and I'm going to kind of wrap up my part, and we'll go back to you, Brett. Let me just give you a few phrases from the stage that, in my opinion, are indications that people are leaning into progressivism, maybe partly leaning into it, maybe they simply have an orientation towards it, or in some cases, they're fully progressive. So you'll hear things like this. My Jesus would never send anyone to hell. When someone says that, what they're saying to you is, regardless of the fact that 11 times Jesus mentions hell, my sentiment about Jesus won't allow me to believe that. You'll hear things like this. The resurrection doesn't have to be historical, doesn't actually have, have to happen for it to be true to me. What someone is saying then is that science might be against, it really it's pseudoscience in some ways, science might be against the concept of a resurrection, beholden to um, the ideology of physicalism, the ideology of science. Uh, we might not want to admit that science permits a resurrection from the dead, so instead we sentimentalize it, and we just say, you know, it's, it's in my cerebral cortex, or it's in my heart. You might hear this from the stage. You might hear, uh, you know, I used to think same-sex activity was wrong until I met some gay people and fell in love with them and realized we're all just alike. What's being said in that sentiment is, regardless of what scriptures actually teach, North Americans value diversity and inclusion, and that's more important than what scriptures actually teach. You might hear this. That's what Paul said about gender roles, but what did Jesus say? When you hear that kind of language, someone is saying that Paul is no longer an authority for the church. Uh, and usually when they say, what does Jesus say? They actually, um, well, a lot of times they don't really even mean what Jesus says. They mean only a few select texts from Jesus. And so, uh, you know, for example, the Red Letter Christians, and I'm, I'm not trying to pick on anybody here, but when Red Letter red-letter Christians, uh, a sort of movement that's uh, about 15 years old, led by the gospel, most of you know. Um, when they talk about the Red Letters of Jesus, you'll notice they generally ignore the red letters of the Gospel of John, which don't really support the program they're building. And they're certainly against the red letters of the book of Revelation, because in the book of Revelation, the red letters are, like, pretty harsh when you get down to it. Uh, but no problem. Uh, once you start down the progressive road, remember, sentiment becomes more important than biblical authority. So this is what we're talking about. I want to say one more thing. Progressivism is a theme. It exists. It's not just a feeling. I mean, it's not like a, like in, in my tradition and in, in my fellowship, if you say progressive, it's actually kind of a good word because a lot of us are trying to get out of legalism. And so in my fellowship, progressive means you clap after a baptism. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> uh, in my fellowship, when you say they're progressive, it means they believe in grace. That, like, you should believe in grace. That's not what we're talking about. Progressivism is um, a well-defined theological movement that's uh, been with us since the earliest part of the 18th century. What makes it so um, dangerous today is that in the last 20 years or so, it's begun to make major inroads into evangelicalism. Uh, uh, Taking entire churches, bloggers, authors, speakers, conferences, and really subverting the Christian faith. So there's a definition. You can play off that. What would you say is the the core
2: at the heart of progressive Christianity like we're talking about that?
3: what is the heart? At the heart of it is a desire to fit into secular America. And by the way, that's why I say it's really an elitist view. So you need to know this. If you take progressive Christianity anywhere to the global south, Africa, Middle East, the subcontinent of India, Asia, they will look at you like you've lost your mind. It's the same thing as if you were to bring cattle worship here to the U.S.
4: The Israelites,
3: how huh, did Israelites start worshiping cows of all things? And the answer is when they were in Egypt, the Egyptians worshipped cows. If you wanted to get ahead in business, you worshipped cows. If you wanted not to be marginalized, you worshipped cows. When they went to the land of Canaan, Baal, Baal, it was a cow. So it just made perfect sense. But if you took cattle worship somewhere else, it made no sense. In the same way... Uh, in North America, because we're building a kind of build a society in North America that's based on all the things that progressivism actually does, based on the idea of so, so, if you drive down the road, you'll see these placards in people's yards science is valued here, inclusion is valued here, you know, this house hated does not belong, and so forth. That's the, that's the world America thinks it's building. And so, progressives are trying to adapt to Christianity to that world, but it wouldn't work anywhere else. Like I defy you to find a progressive anywhere on the continent of Africa, unless they're a white elite person who's visiting, and there are not many of them left. So it's a real North American adapt- adaptation of the Christian faith to North American secular values, and you just need to know, like, uh, cultural accommodation has always been the challenge of people. God, it's not new. This is just our version of it. It's not new. Uh, You know, remember in the New Testament, Paul has to fight off sort of this emphasis on the Torah. And, you know, where there's a big question about, do you have to follow the Torah to be a Christian? And Paul's final answer is no. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. At the same time, he has to fight off those who want to follow the Torah. On the other side, he has to fight off all the pagan uh, Greeks who really want to paganize the Christian religion to make it feel like the worship of Aphrodite or Ceres or whoever it was that they were worshiping? Paul has to fight on both ends, which is why you have a New Testament. So it's just a cultural adaptation that fits very nicely into North American sort of elite, nice, polite society. Uh, and, and so there. Surely that's enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now we're gonna thanks. We're so now. Sure, if you want. to. I don't know. I've
2: he's written. David's written a book, by the way, although he's not going to promote it. Um, called the Grand Illusion, which. Boom! I'm promoting it. There it okay, is. Okay, there it is. Which um, we are taking our staff through it. We train church planters every. Um, I think we'll have nine church planters. We're training this year. We're taking them through this as well as part of what we're doing. Grand Illusion is really important. Okay, the nice catch. What we're gonna be doing here at the beginning still is to define terms a little bit and define how important it is. So, on a scale of zero to 10, how important do you think what we're talking about actually is? I think it's important to get context for this. So zero is like not important at all. We really, I I assume nobody is there. 10 is literally, I mean, is life and death stuff importance, okay? How important is, Bobby, are you staying for this? I am. Okay, I may have you talk here in just a second. This is so um, How important is what we're talking about? Get a, get a number in your mind. Okay? It's 10. Okay, well, good. Why? is The question is, why is it a 10? I would, I, I would suggest to you that it's because, you know, back in the 1970s, In a number, a couple of his books, uh, 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 Francis Schaeffer talked about watershed issues. Um, A watershed. We have the Chesapeake watershed where we are, where theoretically one raindrop could hit on this side of the watershed and one raindrop could hit on that side of the watershed. This rain, even though they're an inch apart, this raindrop ends in the Atlantic Ocean this raindrop ends in Mississippi and in the Gulf of Mexico. So although they're really close up here, where they actually lead is, compl- I mean, hundreds of miles in the distance. I would say a couple of things. Why is this a 10? First of all, because people literally have died for what we're talking about. You know, who is Jesus really? You know, is there really Is the Bible really true? Is Jesus really Lord? People do die for these things. Um, The second is where you stand on this may allow you. I worked with a man who, for five years, wonderful man. He didn't believe the Bible was inerrant. I remember one Sunday morning he got up and read from the Psalms and he said, Now David was wrong about this, Um, but he still believed in Salvation by grace, he still believed all the base, all the core stuff of Christianity. So he believed in the, I would say he believed in the fruit without believing in the roots. But so, so it's possible to be really close up here, but where it ultimately leads is down there. Okay, Bobby, this is where if you could take two minutes and talk about your three buckets, I think we, I think it's helpful to be clear about. Um, what we're talking about are really se- what I would call second bucket issues. And I'll explain why this matters. Second bucket issues that become first bucket issues if they
4: when they're taken to the logical extreme. Okay. Good to see everybody. So grateful you're here. Uh, these guys, Brett and David and I, uh, had the privilege of starting Renew because we really care about theology and biblical teachings because ultimately how we really know the truth about Jesus is because of the teachings of Scripture. And so disciple-making ultimately (coughs) depends on really believing what the Bible says. Now, um, we have a paradigm, and by the way, what I'm going to tell you just real succinctly is in a book on Renew.org. It's a free download, and the book's called Conviction and Civility. And um, one of the things that we really need in our time— is to know what's essential, what's important, and what's personal. I'll explain that in just a second. What's essential, what's important, and what's personal, which we call the three buckets. Is it a first bucket issue, second bucket issue, or a third bucket issue? Here's why it's important. If my eternal destiny or somebody's eternal destiny depends on it, it's a first bucket issue. If it's something that uh, would be what God... What we believe scripture teaches and the historic church believe uh, is an important uh, issue for faithfulness, but you could be wrong on it and still go to heaven, that's the second bucket issue. And then there are third bucket issues uh, where the Bible makes very clear in Romans 14 that uh, they're disputable matters. There's personal matters. Some some of the Christians in Rome uh, ate meat, and that was probably... uh, Uh, in the conversation there was probably pork and some didn't some would eat meat uh, possibly that had been sacrificed to an idol and others couldn't it was a you know disputable matter Uh, some would drink wine he says I think it's in verse 26 and some wouldn't so there's areas where God just gives it up to us and uh, he wants us to have conscientiousness about it but we work it out Uh, so those would be what we call peripheral issues so Let me give you a couple of samples in each. This is very, for some people, this is a really hard conversation. So thank you, Brett, for having me come up here. But uh, when we were uh, starting Renew, we prayed long and hard about this and had many conversations. David and Brett and Christian Ray and Douglas Jacoby and Rick Oster and others. And here's why we had the conversation. Now I'm about to take over the whole class here, and I've got to all stop. All right, Bobby, go for it. Uh, here's why we started the conversation. Coming out of the Protestant Reformation, there was a statement, and at the time it was helpful, but today it's not helpful. Here's the statement: In essentials, unity; in non-essentials, liberty; in all things, charity or love. Right? How many people have heard that statement? Okay. So, if something's not essential, it doesn't matter, right? We can just do whatever you want. That's how it's playing itself out. So, for example, I'll be in a conversation. um, And by the way, I have my renew.org hat on, not my deception.org hat on right now for you to hear this, and you'll see why in a second. So, I'll be in this conversation with somebody about how in the Bible, only, like, it's normative in the Bible to only have male elders. Okay. And right away well, somebody go, well, it doesn't matter that's just your opinion. There's good scholars on the other side and they have another opinion. Well, guess what just happened? It doesn't matter because in essentials, unity, this is clearly non-essential, they've said, and so all things love, so it really doesn't matter. Well, what if it does matter? What if that issue actually is a watermark issue uh, for the health of uh, gender, and for the health of saying there's norms in the Bible that we should follow. So it's not just a personal opinion or peripheral thing. And so uh, we just have worked through this thing and it's in that book. And so uh, there are things that, I'll give you one more example, now I'm gonna be quiet. Um, I had a conversation uh, with uh, a guy, named, his name's Michael Frost and he's an Australian guy and uh, he's really popular, and uh, we, he and I have had some debates just in the, in the spirit of trying to, you know, iron sharpening iron, which is a good thing. Well, we ended up having a conversation about people who believe that you can love Jesus and, and live an actively homosexual lifestyle, and uh, he was pressing me, can't you just recognize that they're Christians and they're wrong on this Friends, here's the problem. Uh, Living a lifestyle of of, uh, ongoing sexual immorality, (coughs) deliberately continuing in a sinful lifestyle of sexual immorality, Galatians 5 makes it very clear, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's not just believing things, but there's certain lifestyles of surrender. And so, understanding that that's not just a you know personal opinion or a non-salvation, it actually becomes a salvation issue. Uh, and I know it's a longer conversation, and uh, in some ways it's um, uh, inelegant to bring it up, but the stakes on it are this: if the Bible teaches that it's sexual immorality, and Jesus clearly did, like when Jesus defined sexual immorality in in. Uh, or when he uses the word sexual immorality in Matthew, in the first century, everybody knew sexual immorality included homosexuality, which is part of what it was. And when the writers of the New Testament say, if you don't repent of that lifestyle, you will not go to heaven, uh, then I need to be concerned about that and realize that that's an essential issue. Now, uh, an important issue, I've already mentioned one, I, I think you can have women elders and go to heaven. I think you'll hurt the church. I think it will hurt the men. I think it has consequences uh, by by a lack of faithfulness to that teaching that are really regrettable in the long term. And I can map those out for you. In fact, I'll just say this about gender. Everybody right now doesn't realize but young men in their late teens and 20s in this country are floundering because we're teaching them to be women. Right. And God didn't make them to be women. They're different. And they need to be called to be courageous, Christ-like men who lead in the way of God and lay down their lives for the wives. but to be bold and courageous and to be men. Mm -hmm. Instead, their suicide rates four and a half times uh, 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 women, they're failing in school, they're addicted to porn, they're not getting married, and there's no dominant vision of what it is to be a godly man today. And that comes out of churches being afraid to address it. So there are a lot of churches with, uh, you know, godly people who have women elders and, you know, uh, we'll be together in heaven, but you're hurting the church uh, by what we believe would be a lack of faithfulness in that important issue. Well, thank you, Bobby. Now everybody, we wouldn't have to say
2: anything else. we could just dismiss everybody and say, hey, that was horrible. If you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah chapter 8. I want to briefly (laughs) talk about... To put put this in context, this is not... I know this isn't a perfect analogy, but to put this in context with what we're talking about today, um, if this is core, okay, what Bobby would call... These are essential... And this is what you, this is personal, personal, and this is important. Okay, what we're talking about today is, first of all, there are some essential things that progressive Christianity would say aren't essential, and those are like core to Christianity. Like, but um, what we're talking about a lot are what are the important things that yes, you can still go to heaven and believe, you can go to heaven and believe there's no hell. You can go to heaven and believe that there is, that the Bible isn't. Another way, another identifier is when somebody says, I believe that the Bible contains the word of God. Okay? It sounds pretty good until you think about what that's actually saying. But you can believe that and still go to heaven, still be a Christian. However, where that leads is to bad places. Okay. Um, the point that I want to make, though, a feet, or um, Jeremiah chapter 8, false teaching Cultural accommodating teaching is nothing new, right? Nothing new under the sun. Listen to what Jeremiah says, and the question I want for you to be able to answer, to think through is, why does Jeremiah say that we need to be wise and alert toward culturally accommodating teaching? Chapter 8, verse 8. How you how how can you claim how you can you claim we are wise? The law of the Lord is with us. In fact, the lying pen of scribes has produced falsehoods. Then that describes what we're talking about here. Now we're not talking about the personal opinion stuff. We're talking about the core stuff and some of the important stuff. Okay, um, the the wise will be put to shame and they will be dismayed and and snared. This is. Um, Christian Standard Bibles are, if you're wondering. Um, they have rejected the word of the Lord, so, that, so what wisdom do they really have? What happens? They claim to be wise, but they're not wise. Therefore, I will give their wives to other men, their fields to new occupants. For from the least to the greatest, everyone is making profit dishonestly. From prophet to priest, everybody deals falsely. They have treated the brokenness of my dear people superficially, claiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed of that they acted so detestably, they weren't ashamed at all. They could no longer feel humiliation. I love the older translation says, they've forgotten how to blush. <laughs> Therefore, they will fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they will collapse, says the Lord, I will gather them and bring them to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, no leaf, even the leaf will wither. And what I have given them will be lost to them. Why does this matter? It doesn't just matter so that we can be. I I think sometimes, quite frankly, I just like to win. I don't necessarily want to love God or love people. I just want to be, I want to win. And be better. You know, it's not so we can win and be superior. It's so we can, it's, it's without faithfulness to scripture, there is no power of God, there is no blessing of God. And that's what Jeremiah talks about. There's no power to heal, there's no power to change, and there's no blessing to God. So what's what happens? There's no fruit, there's no results. And why does this really matter? What Jeremiah does here, the old testament prophets do over and over again. Who's he holding accountable? the priests and the prophets, the scribes. It's you and me, the leaders in the church. Who are the first to be judged? Leaders in the church, what are you teaching? If you don't get this, if you aren't strong on this and clear, how can you be uh, sound a strong um, trumpet sound so that others will follow? So, um, having said that... Uh, <coughs> I think that's all I want to say. So I'm going to pass it off to, um, to, to, I want to call you Robert Young for some reason, but you weren't an actor, were you? David Young, and he's going to talk about his journey through um, uh, progressive
3: Christianity. Uh, so I think uh, it was a real blessing. I graduated my uh, last uh, degree program was from Banffville University in the middle 1990s. And it was a blessing to me because there I was pretty much the only evangelical in my program. I got a, a, a degree in New Testament. In fact, in the whole religion of, of department, I only knew of one other evangelical. And so, what I was able to do was to study among progressives who were uh, really on the leading edge of liberalism. In fact, my uh, major professor, i talking about her, but I'll just say this: our lifestyles were uh, pretty much as different as you could be, although. She was a dear friend, and I still love her to death. Um, But but what I was able to see is that um, a couple of things that I would share with you. The first one is that liberalism is, it is, progressivism is just a choice you make. It's not the way things are. And that helped me because it also dawned on me that, you know, biblical Christianity was just a choice I made, too. Like, if you're waiting for a final, absolute clarity, now I know I've got all answers and so forth, uh, you're going to have a long wait. That um, at some point, all of us are just making a decision. We, we make a decision, and then we follow the implications of the decision. The decision that I made was that I'm going to follow the Jesus I read of in the Scriptures, and I don't care what happens after that. I made that decision, and that really answers all of the questions for me. You know, once you draw a line in the sand and say, here I'll stand, so help me God, I will not back down. Now, all you do the rest of your life is you just manage that decision. So I know who I am. I don't care if the whole world backs down. I'm not going to. And that's, by the way, that's what you meant when you were baptized. When you made a confession, a confession is not a dialogue. A confession is not an argument. A confession is a statement of resolve. A confession is me saying to God, so help me God, I'm now following Jesus Christ, and I don't care what else happens. And what I've discovered is that when I made that commitment... When most of the students around me had made a commitment in uh, what I consider to be a different direction, um, God has really honored that commitment. I don't. I'm not suggesting I'm anything special, but God is, and He's really honored that commitment in my life. So the scriptures, even though I went to courses, I you know there wasn't an evangelical professor on the entire faculty of the religion department, and these are these are these were the brightest. You know, Vanderbilt's religion department was one of the best in the nation at the time. Uh, and so um, not, no one there would tell you the Bible is true. And what I watched was the, um, again, without trying to be ugly, was the dysfunctionality that emerged from picking your own God. So I'll make this quote. Uh, Sean McDowell, some of you who are older will remember Scott McDowell, uh, not Scott McDowell. Uh, Josh McDowell. Yeah, Josh McDowell, his father. Sean McDowell teaches at Biola University and uh, he came out with an article maybe a year and a half or so ago, and he said, just imagine this. So I want to say sex and gender, they're not like crucial aspects of the gospel, but North Americans have made them load-bearing walls. So that's why we have to keep talking about it. You know, like I'm looking forward to the day when we don't have to talk about it so much because I feel like it's not that big a, it's not a central issue of the gospel, but North Americans have made it so important that we have to talk about it almost every week now. So uh, McDowell says, just imagine for a moment a world where everyone follows the teachings of Jesus on sex and gender. And by the way, one of the things I love about this statement is this, I want to be known for what I stand for, a lot more than what I stand against. And unfortunately, when you write a book on progressivism, everybody says, oh yeah, you're the guy that hates progressives, aren't you? It's like, no, I don't. I just felt like I had to write the book. But Think about this. Here's what we stand for. Just imagine a world where everyone follows the teachings of Jesus on sex and gender. Let me play it out for you. I'm paraphrasing. First, there would never again be a divorce. Not a single one. If everyone followed the teachings of Jesus, there would never be another divorce. Which means there would never be another child who grows up like the girl who told me a couple of months ago that I've discipled, my Julian, I've discipled her. Her dad divorced her mom, ran off with someone else when she was three years old. She is like my, she's my daughter. And she says this this to me, what is so wrong with me that my daddy didn't want to love me? She's 23 and still asking this question. If everyone followed the teachings of Jesus, there would never be a girl ask that question again. We would not have a Me Too movement, you know why? Because we wouldn't need one. There would be no pornography, there would be no abortions, there would be no STIs, there would be no children who are growing up without the love of a mother or father, with the exception of death. Every child would know the unique love that a father brings, and the unique love that a mother brings, that you don't get in a same-sex relationship. Each child would get that. Think about this. When children are abandoned at the rate that they're being abandoned in North America now, 35% 35% of all children now in North America are growing up without their biological parents, and you know that in certain subcultures in North America, the numbers are as high as 80%. What does that lead to? It leads to, to an outbreak of mental illness, of crime, of all sorts of broken self esteem. All that just goes away. In the world where everyone says, I'm going to follow the teachings of Jesus, it's an amazingly beautiful place. So when we want to rewrite what the Bible has to say about sex and gender, we just need to realize we're actually writing poison into our culture. And I think that um, here's, I was talking to somebody the other day. I said, you know, your taxes would go down probably by three-fourths. Oh, yeah. Think about this. So this is uh, from, uh, if you guys just go down 65, uh, uh, 65 you'll go by Dave Ramsey's new place. By the way, Dave Ramsey gave all how I many employees got? 600 employees or something. He gave them all a $1,000 shopping spree for Christmas last year. So it's pretty nice to do for your employees. I think Renew should do that. <laughs> <laughs> <Here you go. laughs> they ran some points out a while back that if every, every family was a man and a woman in marriage in North America who finished high school and got a job, the poverty rate in America would decrease by about 90%. Just think, if everybody just followed the teachings of Jesus, and that's why scriptures matter, because our self-inspired sentiment says, hey, is this a so, I, I, and I'm going to stop so, so we can have something else to say besides this, but um, I had a friend call me uh, some months ago, I don't remember how many, and he said, hey, I've got a minister friend, he's moved to town, something's going really wrong with him, he's going progressive, will you be willing to meet with him? And I said, yeah, sure, give me his number. Well, he waited like a month to send me his number. Because you know how it goes. Anyway, so I get his number, and uh, before I can call the God sends me, another email says, never mind. He just left his wife, left his children, left the faith, and watch this. So he could go find the authentic him. Okay, he's still a Christian in his mind. He still thinks himself as a Christian. But what he's done is he's decided that his own happiness, his own self-inspired sentiment, it's more important than what the scriptures actually teach. And let me ask you a question: Is the world a better place because of that? Uh, so just remind yourself that the boundaries that Americans are trying to destroy m- might be survivable by America's white elite. This think how ironic this is: the white elites who live in the five counties that surround Washington D.C., the wealthiest counties in America. You know those counties well. Wealthy in terms of income. That's, income. that's, that's it. Yeah. Those five count. most of the elite there, they have traditional marriage. They follow traditional ethics. But what they're promoting among the masses is the, the destruction of the guardrails that keep people on the roads. When you tear down the guardrails, people careen off the road. And that's what's happening in North America. We're pulling down all the guardrails, and then we're wondering why so many people are running off the road. So what scriptures give us are not burdensome commands. Remember, John says this. His commands are never a burden. The teachings of Jesus are life. They're liberating. So what we're advocating then is a biblical faith. I said enough. Back to you. And then we'll come back to you in just a second. Jesus said
2: you're the light of the world. So if we can get that focus at this point. What we're talking about is how are we brighter light in our world, bolder light, although I will make a political statement. I always find it ironic. I live in Fairfax County, well, I live outside. I live in Prince William County now. Um, one of the, you know, whenever they do the top um, wealthiest counties in the nation, it's always Prince William, Fairfax, Montgomery County. Where I mean, it's like six of them in, our, in Washington, D.C. It always makes me laugh when I hear politicians say, We need to raise taxes so we can help the poor. No, you raise taxes so we can have more money in the Washington, D.C. area Mm -hmm. because that's where your money's going to. Just look at the McMansions. I don't have one. Anyway, okay. Um, Paul said, as uh, you're probably familiar, uh, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, of love, and of sound judgment. Um, How can we be the light of the world we need to we need to be bold and instill a fear or instill a, a spirit of boldness in the people who were disciples. By the way, I probably need to stop and ask the question: Jesus said, Go and make disciples. How many disciples are you making right now? How many disciples will you make this year? How many disciples that you are not making now will you go make this year? And so the question then becomes: as you're making those disciples, how are you encouraging them? To be bold. Um, David asked me to share with you this, this study that I've shared in the past. It's an old study. Solomon Ash did a study on conformity one time, where, and it was years ago, back in the 50s, where they had one innocent person and then a bunch of stooges, and then on the front, on the <coughs> screen, they would do a series of slides. okay? And they, on, the, on that slide, you would have one line here and then three lines here. And the people in the room were asked, simply asked the question, what line here is equal to this line here? Okay? What the the innocent person didn't know is all the stooges were told to say the same wrong line. What were the results? As you might expect, if the innocent person is in there with two people and two people say the wrong line, they're going to trust their own judgment and say, I know what the truth is. It's the middle line. However, put that person in a room with 50 people, or 100 people, or 100,000 people, theoretically. And you go, and all these people are saying, oh, it's the third line. It's it's C, it's C, it's C, it's C, it's C. And you get to the innocent person. What's the innocent person going to say? They're going to start saying, well, maybe my judgment's wrong. You know, maybe they're seeing something that I'm not. What's happened in the United States in the last 30 years with morality is not that a bunch of Christians have reread the Bible honestly and said, oh, you know, the Bible has always taught that homosexuality is okay. Or, quite frankly, um, if you read historic Christianity, they didn't all of a sudden, you know, in the 70s and 80s start to say, oh, The Bible teaches that that women elders... Look at all the women elders that there are in the Bible. Look at the first three centuries and the the early church fathers and what they had to say about how the early church functioned. Look at all the women elders that they had. That's not what happened. What happened was you had a world that was saying the wrong line, the wrong line, the wrong line, the wrong line, and then you have a bunch of timid Christians who maybe are disconnected. It's a discipleship issue right. who don't have a band of brothers and sisters around them to affirm, no, this is what the Bible says, and all the world may say the wrong thing, and it doesn't make it a right thing. That's why in the early church, you had one of the pressures in the early church was what? Just say Caesar's Lord. Just say Caesar's Lord. And you have some people say, you don't have to mean it, just say it and some would comply with the peer pressure. But others would say, I'm not gonna say Caesar's Lord, Jesus is Lord, and they would die for it. And what we need to do is to be discipling people to have the boldness and courage, because they have a clarity on what the Bible teaches on these issues. And on the secondary issues, there's some secondary issues that really are are not gonna lead away from Christianity, but there are some secondary issues. like what the Bible says that, that will. Um, so here's the question that I would ask you. Um, we do oikos maps at New Life. So if this is you, and these are the people that you're discipling, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. That means a disciple is a disciple-maker. That means you have people that you're discipling, of course, and you're not really a disciple-maker until your disciples are making disciples, right? If you said go and make disciples and you're a disciple-maker, this simply is not disciple-making. It's teaching, it's helping, it's encouraging, but it's not disciple-making, it's not reproducing. Um, Reproducing happens when these people are making disciples. Here's my, my point in all of this. How are you going to help these disciples be strong in the faith I'm going to share one story kind of what was pivotal for me and then and then I want to go back to you David was when the Supreme Court passed the um, approved homosexual marriage. I'm not on Facebook because I would not be a good person on Facebook. I'm not sure that I could be a Christian and be on Facebook in a beloved one. But my wife and other people on staff said, Brent, it's probably a good thing you're not on Facebook because of the number of people at New Life that are celebrating this um, decision by the Supreme Court. And I realized at that moment, we, we have a heart to reach lots of people because Jesus said, go and make disciples. Go you know, Jesus said, "I've come to seek and to save that which is lost." And so, our focus has been: let's reach lost people and then disciple them. And I realized that is a short-term strategy that's not going to work long-term, and it certainly is not going to work in a culture that is anti-Christian. We have to go and make disciples, but it has to be by <coughs> strengthening these disciples. Yep, we have a. You're not a disciple. That What drives disciple-making is lostness. If you don't love God and love lost people, you're not going to make disciples. You're just going to be focused on yourselves. But so so. But but it's like, is the strategy to try to pull these people in and then try to get them convinced? Or is it to strengthen the people you're discipling and then hold them accountable for making disciples? So anyway, I would ask you, who are your disciples and how are you holding them accountable? How are you helping them be strong? Go ahead. David, if you want to make some applications.
3: Do we go to 10? Is that right? Yeah. Or are we, are we done? We're, we'll go to 10? Okay. Uh, okay, so let me just give you a few kind of final applications, and then we have a couple of minutes for questions questions. If we don't, then um, I'll give you Brett's cell phone number. And- <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you his book. <laughs> uh, when I was one of my last years with Vanderbilt, we had C.K. Barrett come, who was at that point one of the most uh, prominent English-speaking New Testament scholars in the world. And he'd come and we had a dinner for all the PhD students and it was kind of a nice little thing and all of them. Someone raised the question to Baird, who's a Methodist minister and also a professor of New Testament. What if I just can't get along with what the Bible says about sex and gender, which was even an issue in the 90s at the mid School and the Graduate Department of Living. And he gave an answer, you know, this, this is what the Bible says. And so I, like, even though it wasn't my thing, I just thought, I wonder what he'd do if I pushed him on it. So I pushed him a little further, and I said, you know, what if I, like, what if at the end of the day I, I just can't accept it? And he's such a gentleman. He's a British gentleman with the, with all the, everything, you, the hoary crown on his head and all that kind of stuff. So he sets his tee down, and he looks me straight down. It's like the only time, he was there for three days. His face got red. He got, like, he looked like he was going to come across the table at me. He looked at me, he said then you need to find another religion. The Christian religion is not open for negotiation.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> okay, that's what I wanna to say to you. The Christian religion is not really open for negotiation. You don't, really, you don't get to pick and choose which parts you want. Look, if you want another religion, there's a lot of them out there. But if, when you say I'm gonna follow Jesus, the only Jesus you have access to is the Jesus of Scripture. That's the only one you have access to. And so let me give you a few practical ideas first. Be known for what you stand for and not what you stand against. When we go over progressivism with our staff, I always tell them, don't make this the thing for you. Like, I don't want to be a giant slayer. I want to follow Jesus. So, like, I, I wouldn't be a thorn in the side of everybody always bringing up progressivism. It's huge. It's a big problem. Just as narcissism was a big problem in the second and third centuries. But let's stand first for Jesus with winsomeness and joy and confidence. Stand first there. So you don't have to know the zip code of every dadgum demon in order to know that Jesus is key. Start there. You don't have to know every progressive author. You don't have to be obsessed with it. Start by just confidently standing on Jesus. And I would just suggest that, you know, if you're going to write a book on it, move on and write another book pretty quickly afterwards so that, you know, so you have a life after this. Um, don't be defined by, by, by always arguing against progressivism. Does that make sense? But second, having said that, you need to be aware that it's everywhere now. Most of your pastors probably lean a little bit more left than you do. If you pastor, you know this. Uh, Especially in the mainline Protestant denominations, all the top tiers lean so far to the left, you can't believe it. If they told you what they believed, you'd throw them off the ship. So you need to know that. Many of our, so my age, my son, my daughter, they're both millennials, this is what they're, this is in the air for them. This is just a lifestyle for them. So they actually have to be taught against it. Where I don't know that my generation needs to be taught against it, you know. I'm a Baby boomers are, you know, we're a little more conservative. We had our hippie years, and now we've all settled down and regret our tattoos and all that. Uh, you know, but the millennials, this is like, for them, it's a matter of, uh, uh, it's a real social justice issue for them. And so for a lot of millennials, you need to be patient, loving, You need to invest time in their lives. Um, You know, think about how you're being perceived. And let me say this. When you start to hear strange sounds from your pulpit, I'd pay attention to those. When you hear progressive authors repeatedly being quoted, uh, and when you hear bloggers and your books are being quoted, and you know that they're not really that serious about Scripture, you need to take that seriously. Right here in Franklin, uh, I was going to ask Bobby. And he just took out a phone call and walked out. But right here in Franklin a couple of years ago, uh, a church of about a thousand members came out and announced that they were changing their views on, on uh, sexuality. It was such a celebrated event that the, the, um, Time Magazine featured an article on it and spoke about the, the new direction of North American evangelicalism and so forth. The funny thing was that Time Magazine said this was one of the largest churches in America. It's in Franklin. Like I live just down the road and within one mile of that church were five churches that were larger. Within one mile, five churches that were larger than that one. The Time Magazine didn't talk to them. Well, things didn't go so well. You need to know this, things don't go well. Once you start down the progressive road, things are not gonna go well for your church. Every mainline Protestant denomination in America is now on hospice care. They're all dying. Because the message of progressivism is you don't really need Jesus. We're good enough ourselves. So progressive churches just started to die. Within a year of the announcement, the church had gone from 1,000 to 500. Within two and a half years, they were down to 250, and they had to lay off their staff. Soon, they had to sell their building. They couldn't Now, Time Magazine never came back and told this part of the story.
4: <laughs> and then last year, their
3: pastor resigned, and as far as I know, the church is, uh, I don't even know if it exists anymore. I just am telling you, I got an email this morning from a friend who lives in another place. Um, I'll be general about it, and said, the elders just got up and announced a new view on gender and sex at their church. What do I do? Here's what I said to them. I said, look, you need to know, your church, officially, the death clock has started ticking on your church. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that mean-spirited. I really don't. But it's not going to survive. I said, you need to start knowing that now. I would gently go in and love, and with all the grace and patience you can, start talking to your leaders about it. Like be be like Jesus on this thing, but you need to know if they're not willing to entertain a good conversation, I would if I were you, I'd just say life's short, and I'd go find a, a church that really takes scripture seriously. I would do it with love. I would pray for this church. I'd pray for the leaders. I just remind you that as a, I've been leading a church for forty years, one of my elders is sitting back here. It's hard to be an elder. It's really hard. It's hard to be a church leader. And even if I make a mistake, man, I'm so much more willing to listen to you if you're nice to me about it. If you'll just come in and say, man, I really disagree with you on that. Can we talk about that? so much better than writing ugly stuff like I worship Baal and I and sacrifice babies and all that kind of stuff, which has all been said about me. Uh, don't do that even to leaders you don't agree with. Go in and give them the, get, treat them like Jesus would treat them. Assume the best. Just get, give them the benefit of the doubt. And then if you have to leave, leave in love. Leave prayerfully. Uh, and then, who knows what God will do? Most people, deep down inside, want the real thing. Prog- the day will come when progressivism ceases to exist, just like the worship of cows ceased to exist in the land of Israel. It's going to cease to exist. Historic, apostolic Christianity <coughs> is going to live forever. It's going to live right straight through the news aisle. Most people, deep down, want the real thing. So just be a model of what the real thing can look like with grace. Joy on your face, a celebration of the scriptures and Jesus as King of everything. That's my answer, and I'm sticking to it. I don't know what you got? It's good. Any questions minutes. for David? Yeah, we got five Middle. minutes. Oh my goodness, <laughs> we can solve anything in five minutes. You need to it, but what do you do when you, with all the grace and love that you try to share?
4: truth of scripture but you're still called a hater what you just hated before you just oh yeah you're going to be called
3: names i i, I get that so, how do you handle google it? my name like just google david young from murfreesboro i like i've been called everything we've gone into hiding before my wife and i have in short periods of time yeah you like but but you know what's so cool jesus did too yes. like when you follow so this is just a strategy of the evil He's going to call you every name. He's going to turn people against you. But this is a time, look, we're living in a time in North America where we're going to have real heroes, real champions. This is a time we're going to see real people rise up. By the way, it's also a good time for us to to follow the buckets, the Bobby laid out, and to say to one another, I'm Arminian. I'm just telling you, I'm Arminian, but theologically. But if you're reformed, let's stand together. Let's stand together against the assault of the evil one. I mean, this is a time for us to decide. Some things probably aren't worth fighting over. That's right. It's, there's a lot of stuff's not worth fighting over. Because these are gonna be tough times, but we're gonna see champions. You just have to steal ourselves to the fact that the world. Jesus never said the world's gonna love you for all this. Right. What he said is they're gonna hate you just like they hated me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's what I would say. I would say be, be prepared for it. Um, and 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 by the way, you're naive if you think that if we take enough school backpacks down to the local elementary they won't be against us when we come out with our marriage views you're not even because right. remember the progressives are in the fight it is a life and death fight for them sure. and it better be for you because they're in, they're in it to win they're not in it it's not a game for them they're gonna they're in it to fight for to win and they're not gonna stop until you shut up you just need to know that so i'm somewhat cynical how does
4: the church across this country go so progressive and so liberal? I mean, is it was it really about church attendance and money? Because what else would cause that kind of shift because it can't really be about caring for people and following Jesus? I, I don't know if there's a
2: single answer to that question. Um, I think to a large degree people like to be liked. I think to some degree this is happening and people um, people don't like the opposition. I, th- I think that there are a lot of people in the middle though that um, think they're being kind, but they're not defining kindness as, I think our definition of kindness needs to be Jesus and the woman caught in adultery neither do I condemn you, leave your life of sin. There are a lot of people who think kindness means neither do I condemn you, and I'm not going to judge how you live. That's not kindness. That's tolerating destructiveness, right? Destructive behavior. But I think there are a lot of people in the middle who genuinely, I think there are a lot of pro-choice people who genuinely believe that they're doing the kindest thing in offering abortions to women. But what they don't understand is that, yes, neither academia is great, but you're just leading them to greater destructiveness if you, if you don't help, if you don't, if you don't identify what sin really is and what it'll do. So there's my quick.
3: I agree. I would say just add this. Uh, you know, we, we, we've become cultural Christians, and when times get hard, cultural Christians to drop out. Yeah. Which is yeah. why what's happening in America is, is like seriously really, really bad for America. I mean, it's bad, it's gonna be bad. But it's actually good for the church because now suddenly, when all the cultural Christians leave us, yep. you're gonna have a church full of like really rock solid disciples. And Jesus, all he needed was 12 and even one dropped out of his church. All he needed was 12. And so I do think cultural Christianity has said to people, as long as the current was, flow, like we were, we were in the mainstream American current, you could just flow with it. And now that the current has turned, cultural Christians are gonna drop out bad for America. good for the church. Can
1: we take that last question, and then we're
3: going to have reset. Yes? I just want to make one quick comment. I
0: think
2: bringing it back to discipleship, it's going to be, we meet these people on the front line
3: who are coming, you know, and and have been conditioned and, and put into that mindset, and it's hard to pull them back out. Yeah, so my son just moved six months ago to the Northwest. He picked what he considers to be the most secular pagan place on planet Earth to go plant a church. And you know what he, he says? He says, we've got witches. We have people with mental illness. We have every conceivable problem. And when they come hear the gospel, it's like drinking fresh water. Right? And so, again, if, if he were to go there and say, you pagan heathens, what's wrong with you? Which I want to do because I'm kind of a prophet at heart. But instead, he's like, "Now come, come see. Come see Jesus. And um, so I, just, I, I will leave us with that. Let's not be known for what we stand against. Be known for what we stand for. We stand for Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture. Amen. And to answer
2: your question and to go back to your discipleship thing, I think to some degree, people don't really believe in power of the gospel. They don't really believe that the gospel brings salvation in every way. And so they lose the boldness of realizing that lost person who disagrees with me they need Jesus, and the only way that person can overcome their shame is to lift, is to own their sin and to lift high the cross as greater than their sin. But when we lose the conviction of the power of the gospel that the world that I need and the world needs, and it becomes cultural Christianity, it becomes my happiness. Then we lose our power.
1: There
2: you
1: go. Hey, thank you guys for being here. Where's that clipboard? Right here. Oh, perfect. Um, so if you didn't sign the clipboard, we ask that you sign it. If you uh, enjoyed this session, if you're passionate about convictions based on theology, and you're sorry you missed our gathering a couple days ago, we have another one next year. We're trying to make it easier for more people to come. We've switched it to a Friday evening Saturday, so hopefully more folks can find that time uh, available. But you can find that at renew.org. Make sure you sign up here. We'll make sure you don't miss it. So thank you guys for attending the session.
0: That's it for today's episode. Check out Winfield Bevins ebook that we mentioned at the top of this episode by going to discipleship.org ebooks and look for Multiplied Disciples by Winfield Bevins. Thanks for listening.